This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Eliza Mondegreen is a graduate student researching online trans and detrans communities with a focus on how these communities influence attitudes, beliefs, and knowledge about gender, and expectations and intentions towards transition and or detransition. We discuss her research and the WPATH conference she recently attended in September 2022. You can find her on Twitter and on her substack called Gender Hacked, which we've linked in the liner notes. And here's our conversation with Eliza. All right. Um... Welcome back to Transparency. Uh, I am Aaron Tarot, and as always, joined by my co-host, Aaron Kimberly. And today we've got Eliza Mondegreen with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally get to talk. Yeah, I've been looking yeah. forward to having this conversation with you. So tell us about uh, about the research you're doing. Sure. Um, so I am a graduate student in Canada. I'm from the U.S. originally. Oh, I didn't know and, that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what I study is online trans communities and detrans communities. And I, what I really wanted to look at was how these communities kind of shape attitudes and knowledge and belief about gender and intentions and expectations for transition and detransition. And I've found, since that's a little too sprawling for a master's thesis, I've been focusing on how doubt is talked about in these communities, oh. uncertainty, um, and have basically, it's a subject that comes up all the time and it almost never comes up as doubt. It will come up as, I feel like I have imposter syndrome. I feel like my internalized transphobia is talking. I feel like I'm having like brain worms or that I have this turf rhetoric stuck in my head or all of those, or intrusive thoughts and it's it's been a really interesting area to to look into and to try to understand kind of the psychic landscape interesting been and, yeah that is really interesting are you mostly focused on those who have transitioned and are, are expressing doubt or people that haven't transitioned and they're expressing doubt about how to proceed um mostly people who are early on so people who are trying to decide what to do in the first place and that's where most of that's where most of the doubts and questions come up and it's also kind of you can observe like the socialization process of the communities when you see new people come into it and maybe they ask questions in a way that is uncomfortable for the community and they get kind of schooled in the community's norms um but that makes kind of looking at people who are just entering one of the most interesting populations. What platforms are you, are you, you so primarily Reddit? Are you looking elsewhere? Reddit. Like, okay, okay. Yeah, so, um, because of ethics approval reasons, I wanted to use something that was like fully public and everybody who was on it would know that it was fully public. So I just do Reddit forums. I don't do anything that's like no discord or anything where people have an expectation of privacy. Right, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm in a few, um, I mean, I, I kind of, uh, 
Yeah, I lurked through a lot of the Reddit forums, such as uh, RFTM, RFTM yeah. Men, um, Honest Transgender, a lot of uh, those uh, those those spaces. But I also, I, I, again, I'm not doing any formal research here, and I also uh, tick the tick the demographic. I, I'm in a bunch of the the Facebook uh, closed. Okay. Uh, FTM groups as well, and it's and it's the same thing. You're not missing anything. It's the same kind of, um, yeah, just kind of uh, group um, uh, confirmation, just just over and over and over. And um, yeah, it's kind of. I'm sure. I'm sure you have this feeling of just kind of like watching this slow motion car crash a lot of the times. Like, how how is it kind of separating yourself? Like, just like looking at it objectively as an anthropologist, essentially doing the research, versus knowing that these are young lives going in a direction that in, is not going to be entirely reversible. It's hard, I think, to try to understand something sociologically or anthropo anthropologically. You kind of have to back off and not, not think about where it's going. Um, but it's very hard not to. I mean, so often someone will make a post and ask for it. Like there was one that came up the other day that I, that I found particularly kind of heartrending, which was about, you know, can you guys like pretend that I did something really cool and like compliment me and say, you know, that I'm he, him, that I'm a guy. And I looked back at this poster's history and five days before they had been posting on like Ask Transgender and they were like, I'm really not sure if I'm like, a, you know, am I trans or am I just a lesbian? And they sound really young. And it's, it's just hard when you see that kind of thing. And it's like, you want somebody to, I mean, you see somebody who's a kid and you want to say like, make something cool, have a project, have some other basis for identity that's a little more resilient and like get off, get offline, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What were the responses to that? Oh, I mean, people do play along. So this, you know, this, this young person isn't sharing artwork, but says, you know, I'm an, I'm an artist. And so if you could compliment, you know, artwork, and people will supply these very detailed responses that are like, have you seen his artwork? It's like really great. And he's like so cool. And he's like the coolest guy I know. And it's like, you guys don't know each other. Does this help? That seems to be the case with a lot of youth that I've met. You know, they have a lot of online relationships and very few yeah. in-person relationships. And I think one of the things that I think is hard to see about it and I say this as somebody who was, you know, kind of an isolated teenager, although at an earlier stage in the internet. Um, offline, you can disagree with people and argue with people and make up. And online, it's just, if you step out of line, it's over. Yeah, so dehumanize. Yeah. And it's so, like, you can see that kind of fear of being cut off that's just pervasive in these communities when people are talking about like some of the most sensitive and um, sensitive and just like consequential decisions that they're making as young people, that they have this fear of saying the wrong thing, rubbing people the wrong way and being cut off from what might be, you know, their what might be their most important support group at that time. 
It seems to be a pattern with a lot of the youth is in terms of where they place their trust and where they go for information. You know, when they're when they're struggling with questions like that, like I'm just curious, mm -hmm. are they talking to anyone in their real life about those doubts and fears? Because there's such a distrust, mm -hmm. at, um, and that I think that culture really um, that messaging comes from the community of don't don't trust us any cis people, yeah. don't trust any cis counselors, don't trust any cis doctors, and. So these young people take all of those doubts and concerns and questions online with a bunch of strangers as though they're more trustworthy than, yeah. you know, their local counselor. Yeah, or their friends and family who love them and care about them and may not be perfectly on message. That too. And something that comes up a lot in these Reddit communities is like young people who are on the verge of coming out and... They talk about having made this total transition. They say like kind of psychologically and online and in real life, it hasn't gone anywhere yet. Like it hasn't, they're wondering how to come out into the real world and they have solidified this identity in an online space with total strangers. I see a lot of, of in those posts too, kind of, kind of like not just with parents, but relationships breaking down with more like um, peer relationships, like a lot of, um, you see a lot of posts by transitioning FDMs who are like, okay, my wife, uh, you know, I'm, oh, yeah. she says I'm not the person she married and like, what do I do with this? And then all the responses are obviously, oh, you know, basically you should get a divorce because she doesn't, you know, love and support the real you. And yeah. then there's a lot of younger people. It seems to be primarily um, straight girls who are teenage, it seems, who are saying basically, you know, I'm a guy, but my boyfriend says he's straight, but if he was really straight, he wouldn't be with me. And he doesn't want yeah. me to get top surgery or start HRT. And like this, this kind of um, just, and then all the, obviously all the responses are, uh, okay, he's a transphobe, dump him. And it's just, yeah, uh, yeah it's like s such real, like relationship conflicts that are so completely understandable and reasonable, but then are just yeah. turned into something completely ass backwards uh, in, in the responses. Yeah. The kind of the straight, the straight girl FDM culture is like its own whole other thing, but especially the stuff about like long-term relationships and marriages that are breaking down because somebody can't kind of seamlessly transition the way that they see you. It like, it's very sad to see people come bring those conflicts online and people are like, well, obviously they don't love the person mm -hmm. that you really are and that you have been the whole time. And it's like, mm -hmm. maybe people in your real life are seeing something that people online aren't. Yeah. And what's really devastating is too in, in the in those initial posts, they're basically they're kind of coming at it. This is what I've seen a lot is very, very much understanding where their partner's coming from mm -hmm. and very reasonable to it. But then the responses are yeah. all like, oh, that person's terrible, doesn't see you, doesn't know you, won't accept you. And then there's usually like edit, okay, I see what you guys are saying. Very good point. I'll talk to her about it. You know, yeah. it, it's um yeah, it's like you can kind of see in real in real life that kind of in uh, cult and indoctrination happening. Yeah, this total reprogramming of like expectations of people in your life and what you're willing to put up with. And it's like, okay, if you can't, if you're being pushed away from other people, you're not going to have long relationships. You're not going to have real relationships. And I think that the cult indoctrination stuff is so interesting. Like, I don't know if you read the New York Times article about from a week or two ago about whether schools... Mm -hmm. communicate with parents mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um 
And it was just like, <sighs> there's just been such acceptance of the idea that adults should help kids hide things from loving parents who may or may not agree with a decision and all of this, just all of this exacerbation of alienation that yes, you do see when people join cults and you do see it in manipulative groups where it's like, there is this push to cut people off from anyone who might have a differing opinion or just not be, you know, just not be on board yet. I remember it, one of the things that came up at WPATH, and I don't know if you were at the session, um, but it was like parents have six months is what the presenter said, like parents have six months with a kid, with a small child to like get on board where they're out. I, I wasn't in that session. Could you, could you, I, first of all, let's, let's kind of set the stage that you, yeah. you went to the actual WPATH Sawgate introduction uh, symposium in person. Um, so if you want to just, yeah, if you can dive into that and you kind of tell how that yeah. went. Yeah. And I want to hear a little, I want to hear more about what it was like online until you got booted out too, because sure. I was there in Montreal and I remember scrolling through the list of attendees, or maybe I was on that. There was like a conference platform with forums and like conversation threads. And I saw your name and I was just like, oh my God, like there's like, <laughs> I thought you were there. Oh, and there yeah, would yeah. Be like, yep. One friendly face, and and it was quite. I was really like, quite let down that you were not there in person. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. I remember you asked me, it's like, are you here? I'm like, yeah, I'm here. And I was like, oh, you're really physically there. No, yeah, I'm not I'm there. physically there. <laughs> there were like five minutes where I was like, I might have somebody to eat lunch with. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was there in person. It's like a three and a half day conference. Um, it started the first night with a speech by Rachel Levine, the US Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, which was very religious in its, like it was really like a, did you hear that? No, I did not. Okay. No. It just totally had these religious overtones and was delivered like, you know, a preacher in a pulpit where you're kind of like calling the faithful back to their, idea of themselves and the role that they're playing in history and like you know that they're really persecuted but they'll be vindicated and they need to be uh Levine said ambassadors but definitely meant like missionaries for um gender affirming care and the other thing that everybody who attended online missed on the opening night was that like two minutes into the conference there was an interruption um that it was kind of hijacked or crashed by a group of, um, they called themselves trans femmes and they were protesting the conference and they were kind of thinking of themselves like, they were kind of self-styling as like an act up style protest against WPATH and against the Canadian government for not covering, um, it was like breast augmentation and facial feminization surgery and laser hair removal and it was just the most it was just the most bizarre interruption they had, they had like a really kind of uh controversial or obnoxious name right like it was meant to be yeah. kind of it was it was the acronym was trap I don't remember like it was meant to be offensive okay, okay yep, yep in a kind yep. of a reclaiming a slur kind of way but I don't remember what exactly it stood for 
and their their position essentially because I just I didn't I wasn't there I didn't see the the interruption of course but I was there for the the online response to it which was yeah. very much like anti W path like W path called the cops on these people like basically yeah. this is uh um the 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 general tone amongst the trans attendees were that W path is this oppressive force that's restricting mm-hmm. their access to care which is the exact opposite of how I would interpret WPATH is irresponsibly just sprinkling, uh, yeah, transition treatment. Anyway, yeah. um, so it was, it was interesting because, yeah, they were basically all up in arms about the treatment of these poor trans women who are just speaking their yeah. minds. And, like, yeah, it was very, uh, yeah, the, the, just, the, just the far left tone of, of basically, obviously WPATH are the are are the oppressors we thought they were because they called the cops on these trans women you know it's right. like it was it was just used as there's this fodder thing no one it seemed to just... mind you getting booted out oh no right. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no nobody protested that no um, i was making people unsafe aaron i needed to go yeah, <laughs> <laughs> <needed> to go. <laughs> yeah we should okay we should talk about what happened i think you talked about it in an earlier episode but just like yeah, yeah, yeah. Briefly went over it with um with Lisa when we had Lisa Marciano on okay. a few weeks back. Um, but what happened was, yeah, it was on. Uh, so the day the, the the day prior to the last day, I introduced myself in just a trans specific forum because there's these different mm-hmm. affinity groups on the online platform. And so I introduced myself as a representative of Gender Dysphoria Alliance. And then all the responses to that were Gender Dysphoria Alliance is a hate group. This guy's a turf apologist and or a turf specifically I think just a turf yeah 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 you, yeah that was directly a turf yeah you you saw all those messages too and i did really appreciate you you were liking the comments that i was making oh, and, and then people else. were going on this little witch hunt for me to be like oh there must be a turf here because they're liking these messages <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. it's incredible when you um, were just explaining why it wasn't a hate group and i right. was like i like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. So I was I was basically saying it was like, no, we're, you know, a group of uh, uh, people who are trans who are transgender or have an experience of gender dysphoria who are, you know, advocating for more evidence based quality care uh, for, yeah. for trans people. And uh, and they were basically like, he's, he's not being genuine, he, you know, like then they reference how we talk about like different types of dysphoria on the website. And therefore, obviously, we hate trans women and yada, yada, how it how it all goes. And so. It, it kind of went the way, so basically in, in this group of, I would assume, kind of like professionals within the gender sphere, they were acting just as toxically and rapidly mm-hmm. as like the TRAs on Twitter in, in oh, response yeah. to very rational, reasonable, from my perspective, things I was saying. And uh, so I was like, wow, this is this is ridiculous. These are professionals within WPATH or just attendees here. Anyway. So then uh, it was the next day that I, I made my own uh, forum or I made my own thread, essentially. And the prompt is basically have a title, describe what your thread's about, and then ask the first question. So I did all three mm-hmm. of those. Uh, the title was uh, trans people um, opposed to gender, aff- opposed to only gender affirming care for minors or something along those lines. And then um, I explained who I was, where I was coming from. And then the question was, what are providers doing to ensure that cis children aren't transitioned unnecessarily? And I didn't, ex- I expected the same kind of rabid responses in that thread as I had gotten the day before. But I, I assumed the point of me posting it was that because there's a DM function within the platform. Yeah. So I was expecting people to reach out to me directly with questions or, you know, agreement or what what have you. I didn't I didn't expect any public 
um, like agreement with me. And that was fine, but what? Yeah, I didn't get any messages at all because I was actually booted from the conference within a couple of minutes of posting that thread. Which was um, the second time you were booted, right? Because the Saturday you were also booted. Yes. You got yes, kicked out on Saturday, or what happened? No. Okay. Yeah. So I was I was kicked out. It was shortly after I'd engaged in that conversation. I was mentioning I'd lost access to the conference, and I thought maybe it's a glitch. Maybe and I. Um, so I, cause it, yeah, it showed me that I wasn't registered for the conference. So I, uh, I reached out to the woman who switched Aaron cause Aaron was originally registered, but then he couldn't go. So I went in his stead. Okay. Um, but so I reached out to the, to the woman who facilitated that transition between our two, uh, registrations. And I said, you know, I, something's happened here. I'm not able to access the conference. And she said, okay, I just refreshed it. Try again. And so I think she put me back in. Um, probably because there was no grounds for removing me. I'm not sure. But then, yeah. so I was like, I yeah, so I think I was actually booted. It wasn't a glitch. Like I, I, you know, originally tried to give them the benefit of the doubt on. But then the next day when I was immediately removed after that thread and I emailed that woman again and never heard a thing back. Um, yeah. I emailed her twice, I want to say. Um, basically saying, okay, what did I do? Um, if you can't point to where what I've done wrong, uh, you know, obviously GDA should be refunded for my registration fees because... We, we we were supposed to have access to all that content for another 60 days. So Aaron yeah. and the rest of the people, you know, they could all go through and review. <laughs> but because I was kicked out, I was immediately, you know, we lost access to that. Um, but yeah, it, it was funny too, because the, um, the, the, there was a real glitch in the app. And that was that I would continue to receive message notifications yes. popping up on my phone yeah but when i try to click into them then i would get the message that i wasn't registered for the conference so i was screenshotting all these messages that were basically saying take that down you know like like in like oh aaron terrell's been removed from the conference earlier this morning like why is that thread still up and people were just like like they, they, there were multiple messages saying why is that thread still up like they were really upset that yeah. i just asked that question so yeah. Did you ever get your money back or get any kind nope. of explanation? No, I nope. followed Aaron up with them too yeah. and said like, what, you know, what community guidelines did he break? Like he either, yeah. you either prove that he did something wrong and was inappropriate or you refund our money. Right. So, and they didn't and reply. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, but. I'm not surprised either. I mean, it basically costs, it yeah, it basically costs us 700 bucks to prove that they were, that they've been completely captured by this cult-like yeah. mentality yeah so what did you attend before you got the axe Ooh, I, I i went to a bunch of different ones i was kind of like jumping between them because obviously there are multiple going on at the same time but mm -hmm. i was mostly just kind of getting trying to get a feel for it because my my what, what i was thinking was we would have access to this for another 60 days so i can go yeah. through all of them so it was mostly just like going into different ones and seeing what the responses were seeing what the tone was and and things like that so I went to um, the the uh, I, I saw the entirety of the um, gender affirming care for non-binary and gender queer youth. Mm -hmm. That was a really alarming one, which was basically all about how do we get parents of these minors who aren't identifying as the opposite sex? They're just identifying as non-binary or gender queer. Mm -hmm. Like how you know, like what kind of medical services can we provide them, A, and B, how do we get the parents to stop being transphobic and agree to these medical interventions on their minor children? Um, that one was one of the more alarming ones I went to. I went to the yeah, adolescent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Went to the adolescent one. I think mm -hmm. I went to the children one. And then a few others that were just kind of like, like different, um, 
like mental health presentations and I kind of, yeah, forgot all of, yeah. I heard that. I'm sorry. I heard the presenter for, I don't know if it was the children or the adolescent one, but I heard the presenter looked kind of nervous as though they were expecting, expecting some negative feedback. Yeah, Eliza, I don't know if that's the impression you had, but I remember like the the main presenter of the adolescent chapter, he seemed like a hostage. Like he was he seemed terrified of yes. the audience. Like everything was yeah. like like so cagey and so like over explained. And he yeah, it wasn't even like he seemed nervous, like you would be like nervous public speaking, but like yeah. he seemed scared. It was weird. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go to the mental health assessment one? I don't think so. Because there were, okay, there were two, and one of them was like, there was a mental health comprehensive assessment for youth. I don't think I did. And that was like first thing in the morning, and they couldn't say assessment outside of quotation marks. They'd be like, assessment, like you assess them. It's comprehensive. Like, they always say that the solution, if there are comorbidities, is more assessment. And that was the They would say what, what assessment is. Well, they would... What they basically did was they were kind of protesting against WPATH for giving them that brief of assessment because they thought that assessment was so problematic. Right, right, okay. And so it was mostly about how you don't actually need to assess kids with mental health comorbidities because they know who they are too. Right. Um, And then there was the mental health- It's ableist to question- ableist. To question the trans identification. Right. Like ableism came up a lot because it would come up with mental health comorbidities and like assessment. And it would come up with um, complications from transition where it would be like, if you're talking about complications, like it's a bad thing, like that's ableist. Because yeah. some people yeah. are born like that and like maybe there's nothing wrong with being like that. It was like, right. if you're medically harming someone, it's not ableist to point this out. But there were just so many, it was kind of like any way a provider might try to go to get the full picture of what they're doing or to look critically at what they're doing, there would be some kind of roadblock. It would be like, well, you don't get it because you're cisgender, or you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't think about it that way because it's ableist, or, you know, it was, it was just like dead end, dead end, dead end. Wow. Yeah. There are clinicians, and I won't name them, but there are clinicians that are have, that are kind of on my radar who have been providers in gender medicine for many, many years here in Canada and probably elsewhere who are absolutely terrified. They're still involved in doing research and providing consultation, but they're absolutely terrified to go to the conference. So Mm -hmm. an example would be like an endocrinologist who is, because they're trying to squeeze certain disciplines out of the system, right? So they don't want, they want um, those that are really advocating for an informed consent model only um, would want to improve access by just having any GP out there be able to write these orders right with no assessment no psychotherapy so even like the thought of an endocrinologist as being involved in our care is now considered taboo so they're 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 endocrinologists and other disciplines and like psychologists developmental psychologists and all these disciplines who would be really helpful and have been really helpful in the system for many many years who are now afraid to to show their faces there because oh you're an endocrinologist we don't want you involved in our care you know too much with endocrinology being kind of short, like I was aware of the general practitioners, like they want them to be able to prescribe, but I wasn't aware of the like nudging endocrinology out of the picture. I was but, never sent to an endocrinologist. That, so that used to be standard is, you know, you'd go and you'd get your assessment and then you would see an endocrinologist. Yeah. And 
but I mean, I transitioned about 15 years ago, though I feel like I've been saying that now for three years. But do the math again. Um, but I, I did, I never saw an endocrinologist and that used to be okay. standard. So even as of 15 years ago in certain places where this new model was, was already being implemented endocrinologists, unless there was some sort of, um, you know, hormonal complication, people weren't being referred yeah. to endocrinologists. That's interesting because, well, I mean, there are so many tensions in kind of gender affirming care, but you know, there's the camp that says that wants to say, gender dysphoria is basically an endocrine condition and a birth defect. Uh And of course their intention with the other camps where it's like, it's an identity and it's embodiment goals and it's all these other things. But it seems like the, it's an endocrine condition and a birth defect is like the strongest foothold in keeping it under the banner of medicine and in keeping it under the banner of like health insurance. And it's curious to see it kind of loosening that foothold. Yeah, an endocrine an endocrine condition that endocrinologists shouldn't be involved in. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it is wild. I mean, it so- was a very strange conference. It was. I've gone to some medical conferences and a lot of like public health conferences over the years. Uh, that's the field that I used to work in, and I just can't think of any conference where you know, most conferences, you want the media to be there so that they can report on all of the, you know, the new research and all the things that you're finding in the field and, you know, really play it up. Um, At WPATH, media weren't allowed at all. Um, I, there were two, two people who were attending remotely who were reporting for like the post-millennial and I don't remember the other outlet. And I was of course attending like as a, as a someone intending to report on it, um, but not registered as a reporter. And on the last day of the conference, there was this total witch hunt for reporters where like it was announced via the conference platform and there was a little, it was part of the presentation that like they thought that reporters were there. Um, they wanted people to report any suspicious activity immediately to the CEO of WPATH so that someone could be ejected. And this was very nerve wracking because like you said, like it really did have that like TRA online, but in real life atmosphere where you don't really know what's going to happen. Um, and because I felt like I stood out because I was like really taking notes, which was unusual. Yeah. Conference. You said nobody so, else was taking notes, which was is like, nobody really else was weird. Taking notes, and it was just like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. If, you, if you know how to write, you must be a reporter. <laughs> <laughs> It was just, it was absolutely bizarre that it was like, yeah, and the weird behavior would be taking notes or the weird behavior would be, um, <laughs> yeah. Do you think what I, because you you also said, because I asked you, I was like, wait, is nobody else raising, you know, nobody else there raising questions like I am? And you said, no, absolutely. No, 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 the no, no, only no. contributions were all positive and were all. Uh, yeah. The only like there were two sessions that I went to where there were any questions whatsoever that weren't completely obsequious. And so one of them was the session about how to transition people who say that they experience multiple personalities. And these weren't, I would not call these serious questions. These were very much questions that fully inhabited kind of the frame of mind of the presentation. But someone was like, okay, how do you, 
how do you deal with consent in a system with an unknowable number of personalities? A system being the term for somebody being... who has yeah multiple personalities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, how do you navigate informed consent under that situation? And if you believe those things, like that's an important question. And the other question in that session, which did get uncomfortable and didn't get answered, was that there was a woman about my age who stood up and was like, um, asking about transracial identities after it had been agreed that a that a multiple personality could have any age and any sex or gender presentation and any life experience. And she was like, I actually have a lot of clients who have like transracial personalities. And it was so uncomfortable that they just like shut it down right away. <laughs> okay. um, and the other session where, and these weren't, these weren't questions, but the eunuch session got very, very yeah. tense. And Yeah, we should probably just cover really that rejected. one specifically. Yeah. 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 Um, so WPATH added in the latest standards of care, a new chapter on eunuchs and the necess kind of the moral necessity of affirming a man's identity as a eunuch. Um, the presenters were just absolutely bizarre people, even by the standards of the conference. One of them had previously written an op-ed for the Washington Post that was like, ISIS is making a big mistake by beheading its captives. It should really castrate them. I saw, I read that article. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and he's the same guy who was basically, uh, was he a moderator of a, or he, or he was the host of a online the archive? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Which yeah. is really just like, it's just, it's just BDSM porn specifically around castration, essentially. Yeah. And like, I mean, Genevieve Gluck has talked about this, like castration fantasies about like kids too, like little boys too, really troubling stuff. Yeah, he also was a was a moderator of some role with the eunuch archive. So he makes this presentation about how eunuchs are like the oldest gender identity and enlists in service of eunuchs as a gender identity as opposed to like a a condition as a result of castration, like people who were slaves, people who were servants of like the Chinese emperor, um, people who would never have thought of it as a gender identity, maybe didn't choose it. Um, and then keeps moving through this like very disturbing information when he's talking and he's using the language of the community, which is a language of eunuchs, wannabes for, for men who aspire to being castrated and to be eunuchs and like that language of castration. Mm -hmm. And he's reporting this really troubling stuff like, oh, a really high percentage of these men that I've talked to who want to become eunuchs or are eunuchs, like a lot of them were like threatened with castration by their parents when they were kids, but that's not that interesting. Like, you know, just kind of a curious little finding that probably doesn't have anything to do with their desire to be a eunuch. Um, and at the end of the presentation, there were a lot of people who wanted to talk and they were in the chat and they were in person, like lining up at the microphone and they were just berating these presenters for using this very raw language that eunuchs themselves use. So it's kind of like with every other subculture, you should use the language that they use, but the language that eunuchs use is way too evocative. And they would be like, you know, we have we have language to talk about this other than castration, like that's for animals. Like we might say like, it's like gender nullification. Um, orchiectomies. Orchiectomies, right. And I think that that session really brought out the discomfort that a lot of people feel 
and have been kind of socialized within the field to suppress because there isn't actually a difference between like performing, between castrating a man who thinks that he's a eunuch or wants to be a eunuch and, you know, performing a gender nullification surgery on like an AMAB non-binary person. There's no, there's no difference between those things, uh-huh. but one of them people are allowed to feel really uncomfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. That was super interesting, but all of the think- objections were on the level of language. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a woman, she said she was very upset about like him using the term castration okay. and yeah. And that, that, that was the only one then that, where there were actual objections and it was all about, yeah, that the terminology, right. Well, the, about the, the terminology. there was one genuine question where this guy was like, okay, I accept that there are these, you know, people who identify as eunuchs and therefore they're going to seek uh, elective castration. He didn't use these terms, but that's what they're mm-hmm. doing. And he's like, basically, um, even if I'm willing, I can't remember what he was a urologist. I don't know what he what his what his background was, but he's like, okay, even if I'm willing to, um, you know, basically, or he was saying like, basically, how do we get people on board to do this? It's like this is a very morally objectionable practice that people are going to have a lot of moral objections to. How do we get them on board to actually perform these surgeries? And the response from the presenter was essentially, oh, we're covered by the rainbow now because this is in stock eight. We're basically, you know, this is now an LGBTQ issue. Yeah. 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 Is what he said. It's like, and we can, we can lean on the LGBT, you know, it felt very much like, oh, we've got this, this yeah rainbow shield. Yeah. That like that kind of basic line of questioning came up in several different sessions. Like I think it came up in the non-binary session also where it was like, someone who's a surgeon got up and was kind of doing the making a statement instead of asking a question thing and was like, I used to be really uncomfortable doing this. And then I realized how essential it was and I got over my discomfort and now I do a ton of these surgeries. Like you have a ton of people who are making a virtue out of, you know, overcoming their their qualms. As if the resistance itself was somehow the problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That it was this artifact of your privilege or your bias or your internalized transphobia. And it was like, maybe that was your medical training or your sense of ethics or something that was like, maybe we shouldn't do this. Yeah. I've heard some people refer to this kind of care as a, you know, um, like an extension of a harm reduction model mm-hmm. that if you can't, you know, and, and so that, I mean, a harm reduction model started with with um, substance use and it's like well if we can't get people to you know immediately stop substance use we're just going to reduce the harm in the meantime and hope that they eventually do recover but this is such a misuse of the harm reduction model but I think for some I'm trying to think of like how would otherwise reasonable clinicians wrap their heads around this and get behind this and I think that might be one of the the mind creeps is well if people are going to take their kitchen knives and castrate themselves then it would be harm reduction to get a surgeon to do it. Yeah, I think that that's a huge part of it. And that there is this, like you say, this slippage between if someone's going to do it anyway, it's better for a doctor to do it and it's better for it to happen in a hospital. Um, But that that, like in a setting where those kind of surgeries are like increasingly normalized, like WPATH signing on with Unix, like that takes on a very different valence. Even even if we agree, and, and I think, you know, 
this is a good thing to kind of leave as an open question for medical ethics to consider that 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 kind of harm reduction is a role of medicine you know to what end i mean that's that's sort of my question is if yeah. you take that to its natural end i mean does that mean absolutely everything is permitted within our healthcare system right Ampu leg amputations right yeah at our Home Depot in, in Vancouver a number of years ago, there was somebody that walked into Home Depot and amputated their own leg with one of the power saws. So do, at I the mean, Home does, Depot. At the Home Depot. So, I mean, does that, I mean, people do all kinds of, you know, yeah. extreme self-harm behaviors. And does this meet, does it, does this open sort of the, open the gate to doctors yeah. involving themselves in, in facilitating absolutely every self-harm behavior? Yeah. And I think that, that's when something that we have to be able to like look at both sides of that because it is different when a troubled individual does something like go into a Home Depot and pick up a chainsaw and versus when medicine does it as a doctor does it as medicine like these are not equivalents and it yeah. gives the impression of like physician or or government you know sort of state endorsed behaviors right so it, it, yeah, now, totally. it, it changes the tone of how of what we think of these behaviors and now you know as he said it's covered under the rainbow it's in the w path as though this is a legitimate thing yeah. to do right to just castrate yourself because you have a yeah. fetish anything else from the w path conference you want to because you, you were there for all three days and you said, you, I remember you talking about it after the fact is basically being like just this very surreal experience and just kind of feeling kind of gross yeah. after the whole affair of just like being in in a place yeah. where you felt like the only person in touch with reality. I, so there was that. I mean, I think when I was at the conference, I was not. I was attending and I was like, okay, I'm going to attend, I'm going to observe, and I'm not going to participate. So I didn't ask questions and I didn't like get up and clap when Levine was talking or things like that. Um, and this kind of, you know, marked me out as being an unusual attendee. And so that was a little bit stressful, but there's, there is something where you're attending a conference and you're not able to show the way that you feel about it in any way. And mm -hmm. then you, it's over and you go home and you can actually feel all of the feelings that you had about it the whole time. So by the time I got home on the last day, I was just like <laughs> completely spent. And even like there were evening activities every day, like parties and award ceremonies. And for ethnographic purposes, like I should have gone to really see what it was like. And I just couldn't do it. Like I was just so maxed out every day. Have you ever attended any other, um, you know, sort of medical or clinical conference? Like in yeah. a completely different practice area? Yeah, I have. And the atmosphere would just be completely different. Like there would be disagreements that were above ground. Yeah. And people would talk about them in pretty clear language. Um, like I said, the press would be there. Uh, but the main thing is just like the atmosphere at WPATH, it was not like any medical conference that I'd been to. It was really like this like religious revival and like multi-level marketing scheme and with a little bit of like Stasi energy around the edges, which which Aaron experienced firsthand by mentioning some heretical perspectives. 
it was just so odd and people I, yeah I grew up going to uh evangelical Christian uh youth camps you know so okay. like three days out of a summer where it was just like really really um you know meant to you know get you really really riled up and really excited oh, yeah. to be an ambassador for God and you know to be like and that's that's exactly what I the exact parallel is, is not like a medical too. conference but a religious revival yeah yeah I went to some of those too maybe not like big e evangelical but definitely like get revved up for God and yeah yeah and that was the most similar in atmosphere get revved up for trans yeah yeah and like this whole kind of this sense of being among believers in a world where you're really persecuted for the things that you believe whether you're really persecuted for those things or not um it was it was a very interesting atmosphere and it's like it's a pretty small world so everybody knew each other and nobody knew me so nobody interacted with me and when I tried to talk to people um they would really end it pretty quick it was like nobody was you know vouching for me okay it's interesting Hmm. yeah that was why I hope that you were there so that I could have, you know, lunch buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And when you told me, was like, it's, it's Eliza from Twitter. I'm like, Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm really curious what would have happened uh, you know, to you, Aaron, if you had attended in person. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do wonder psychologically if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously very outspoken about things on, you know, here and on uh, in in written form online and stuff, and I have no qualms with being like the center of a pylon. Like in that instance, it's just it's just frustrating. It's like, come, how are all these people thinking that this behavior is appropriate? So I mean, yeah. it was like I didn't feel like in that moment that I needed an ally, but it was just really refreshing. It's like, okay, there's at least one person here who I you know sees sees what I see, and that's refreshing. But but I. So so I don't have a problem with being kind of the the heretic in an yeah. in online setting. But I, as far as physical reality goes, I'd probably be a bit of a coward and I wouldn't because because when, when you're in a mob like that or what could be a mob very quickly, yeah. I don't think I would have been able to vocalize those same things. I'd be a little bit worried about my 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 physical safety ultimately. Yeah. 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 And I mean, people were very fired up and it's. Like, I think if you had been there in person, you would have found it to be, like, it's really disturbing when you're in a crowded room and everybody is being told that, like, the people of whom they definitely think that you were one, like, hate them and wish yeah. that kids who identify as trans, like, were dead. You know, like, it, it's crazy stuff. And you just, Yeah, like, you see this stuff no on idea. Twitter and you think it's some weirdo you teenager do, and it's not. in their bedroom. Yeah. And, and, it's know, absolutely institutionalized. Uh, yeah. So they generally think that that if if cis people had it their way, there'd be a trans genocide. It's just like, yeah. who who, yeah, yeah, yeah. It bizarre. was really wild. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I, I don't know if you saw here in Montreal, there was supposed to be a talk about kind of sex versus gender identity on campus. Yeah, I saw the yeah what happened to you there. Yeah, you want to talk yeah. about that? And that was the first. So the talk didn't happen. Um there were trans activists from my university and from from elsewhere in the city who brought you know I don't know how many people well over 100 to like shut it down 
and I was one of four people who was trying to get into the talk and you know we had they don't know anything about us other than what, that we want to attend a talk and they were just pushing and shoving and yanking like lives depended on us not getting to the door of the talk which of course we did not get to the door of the talk because there were only four of us it was just completely it was such a combustible situation because they were allowed to like touch us and it was the kind of thing that should and it was just like okay if there's one person who's a little bit more unhinged than the rest of these people who think that we are trying the to make trans lives right or that there were that we are the wannabe perpetrators of a trans genocide like if there's one right. of these people who's a little bit more unhinged than the rest like we're gonna get beat up yeah yeah, because it, it just it takes creepy. one person to kind of light the match, and then oh, everybody's totally. like, "I was like, okay, yeah, this is fair game. This is the right thing to do." Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you could see that like ratcheting up of like the protest moving from chanting to screaming to like pushing us around really hard. Yeah, it was really. I've never experienced anything like it. Wow, terrifying! Yeah, it is terrifying. Yeah, and the, the university probably predictably didn't handle it very well. Like, there was never any statement. Um, there was never any apology to the speaker from LGB Alliance who was meant to talk and who had, you know, was kind of besieged in the lecture hall and then the activist broke in and unplugged the projector and threw flour on him where it was like, you know, we're close enough to you that we could throw anything we wanted on you and it wouldn't have to be flour. Like... There was no apology. There was nothing about academic, I don't know, just academic inquiry and what kind of atmosphere we want to have on campus. It's like everybody wanted to pretend that it didn't happen. And the law center that organized it, they erased the event from their website as though it had never been proposed. Wow. And they never seem to clue in that it's that it's precisely that unhinged behavior that people are pushing back and, and speaking out against, right? It's yeah. if we were able to have civil conversations, we pro we could probably iron a lot of details out and and then get on with our lives. But it's it's this yeah. mob mentality. They're, they've turned into a gang that everyone's afraid of, and that's and people have had enough. Yeah, and the speaker, so Robert Wintemute, he actually said that in his interviews with the press after it was shut down, where he was like, you know, I want to thank the activists for giving me a taste. You know, I was coming here to talk about the conflict that exists, whether we talk about it or not, between rights that are based on sex and rights that are based on gender identity, and the climate that women experience of intimidation. And I want to thank the activists for giving me an experience of that intimidation firsthand. But yeah. it was... It was the kind of thing where it happens and you think, okay, this should wake people up and then it just disappears. Yeah. Has there oh, been no, any- too much- Oh, go on, Aaron. I was just wondering if there's been, like, what has the reception been to the study that you're you're doing? Has there been any pushback sure. or have you been able to kind of keep that quiet or? I would say that I haven't kept it quiet. Like I've, I have classmates in my department and I have, you know, presented different pieces of it in seminars and I've had very little pushback. There was one very young classmate of mine who kind of pushed back very righteously, but very half-heartedly and kind of ran out of script pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Like I was talking about 
just kind of like the study design. And she was like, you know, I think it makes me really nervous to hear this because whenever people talk about detransition, it's just weaponized. And like, and it was very obvious at that moment, like what I was supposed to say and do that she was prepared for me to say and do, which was to apologize and to say, you know, you're right. And like, I'm not going to do it. And instead I was like, just because research into a subject can be weaponized, does that mean that we don't try to understand it? And she just ran out of, you know, ran out of script, had that whole like puppet with cut strings thing where it was like, what do we do now? But that's really the only pushback. And I think, you know, most people that I've talked to here on campus, either one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, it's interesting because when I bring up, when I say I'm researching gender identity, people will tense up. And when I say, I think that there's a lot going on there and it's a lot more complicated than we usually talk about it. People like, <sighs> like relax. Cause they, oh, oh, okay. They, they, and they have a ton of questions. Like that has been overwhelmingly my experiences that as soon as people feel like, okay, they're not gonna be policed for the way that they talk about it. Uh, they're not gonna be shunned for having questions about it. Like they have a ton of questions about it and none of them come from a place of hating people or wanting anything bad for people, but of just like feeling like what is being said and what is being done are not in contact and wanting to resolve that in a way that they don't lose friends and don't face social sanctions. Yeah. So I've had a lot of good conversations. I, I expected it to I expected to have no friends, frankly. <laughs> and that hasn't been an issue. So I'm grateful. Well, yeah, then I, I commend the bravery going into it, then realizing, yeah, what could be uh, on the other side. What did you how, what does your research look like? Like what um, how are you structuring it? If you don't mind like going into those details for us. Um. So it is it's basically an online ethnography of these Reddit communities. And then the analysis is focused on the specific questions about how to deal with uncertainty about identity and advisability of transition or detransition. Um, and the way that it kind of works out is that it's like an online ethnography plus um, like a content analysis that you get a ton of like text data and you look for certain things and then you code it and you lots of spreadsheets <laughs> I'm not sure that this is exactly the way that I would do it if I didn't if there weren't um kind of a norm of doing three different rounds of descriptive and thematic coding but it it does like it works because it helps you catch things that you weren't looking for okay yeah I'm glad you're doing it yeah. yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to I, seeing the results. Yeah. And, you know, I had thought about going back to grad school for a long time before I actually quit my job, and it's been good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here and talking to us about it, Eliza. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a great to meet you. You too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support. <laughs>